I'm Theo. And I'm Juliet. And this is Apologies Accepted. We offer an entertaining look at some of the big issues in history by examining public apologies of the famous and infamous. We're looking at politicians, serial killers, actors, and you. Send us a public apology you would like to make, and we'll read it on the air and give you a chance to redeem yourself, or just get some guilt off your shoulders. We're here for you. Once a week, maybe more if you're really, really sorry. accepted the podcast. the podcast and i'm not theo and i'm not juliet and we're happy to be back with you this week um theo what's shaking bacon so i have a big fat strip of bacon gross Ooh. to share with you Ooh. yes because um i went to a jazz club last night oh my gosh yes and Tell it me all about was it. awesome get ready okay it was so fun um so it's called parker's it's in downtown Uh austin Uh uh-huh who knew there was a jazz club in downtown austin not me and yeah me either (laughs) um and you know i mean so on one hand i'm such a walking fucking cliche right it's like i have a podcast and i went to a jazz Uh, club uh, and i read literature you know it's just like (laughs) god here i am what a what a surprise um but James is not a jazz fan at all. Sure, sure. I'll even say hates, right? Okay. Uh, But he had a great time. It was was, uh, his idea. He actually really, really loved it. And the club is so fucking cute. Like, it's heartbreakingly sweet. Um, The owner also plays. Um, Yeah. The only thing I didn't like about the club, and he sings, like he he plays and he sings and he's sort of the front man for the band and he and the band have all been together off and on for like 25 years and they played like the restaurant circuit around Austin and he's opened up this club just a little bit before COVID. Um, but it's got like a really unique setup because the stage is surrounded on three sides by foam paneling for acoustics. And then uh, the audience is up very close, and he's like, you know, this, the owner was like, you know, we we built this to be a unique space for jazz performers to play. And it was like, Winston Marsalis has played there and loves it, right? And so, okay, cool. Um, loved it all. Uh, he's got a nice voice. Band was great. Club was clean, awesome. <laughs> Staff was great. And some of those times, you know, I've been to some jazz clubs where it's like, what's what? on the floor? Um- I don't want to interrupt, but yep, what made fine. James decide to go if he doesn't like jazz? He's hosting a, I almost said a school thing, a work thing, yeah. and uh, they need a night activity, so he wanted to uh, check it out and see because it just felt like a, a adult thing to go do, right? Sure. So um, one thing about me, I hate woodwinds. Hate them. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> hate the clarinet. <laughs> hate them. Hate them. Hate them. Uh, and it stems from an incident that actually did happen in the third grade where my mom said, okay, you guys need to learn how to play musical instruments. Oh, no. Okay. Yep. And so there was like band at school and uh-huh. I wanted to play the oboe. Sure. Right. And the band instructor, the band leader, the band teacher was like, um, no, no, you can play the clarinet though. And the great thing uh-huh. is if you learn to play the clarinet, then you can play every instrument in the world, blah, 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 blah. Oh, sure. And whatever. Whatever. We, did it for like that year 
Mm-hmm. I didn't practice much and then eventually it just disappeared and never went back and fine, cool. But yeah, like I just, the whole, like the minute, <laughs> I'm trying to think of that one guy's name. All I can think of is Yanni. You know, the guy that plays like the saxophone or whatever. There are a lot of guys that play the saxophone. Yeah, I hate them all. <laughs> I've never in my life said, oh, great, the saxophone. But okay, so I was being stupid last night and... um some guy was playing the bass, which uh-huh. awesome instrument. Yes, beautiful, love it, great, all night yeah. long. Yeah. So I said to James, that's the biggest violin I've ever seen. Because <laughs> I thought it was funny. That <laughs> is funny. It is, yeah. He did not think it was funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then... At one point, I wanted to get a video near the end when things were wrapping up. I was like, yeah. oh, this is so great. And I'd had like three Manhattans. So, yeah, yeah not super sharp today. Awesome. Um, and uh, I accidentally turned on the light oh, when no. I was taking the video. Oh, and no. lit up the entire room. And about 30 <laughs> people all turned around turned and around looked at me. You. Yeah. Oh, and so God. it lasted about four seconds, but they yeah. were the four longest seconds of my life. Um, so, so was it the house band that was playing or did someone else come in to play or who, who was playing? The house band. Uh, the, the house band. woodwind it, instrument. The owner. So, oh. and that's the thing that, that I felt bad about, right? Because I was like, oh my God, this, I couldn't write a better thing than this, you know? He's the guy that's been working the circuit in town for years and scraped uh-huh, up the money uh-huh. to open his own club. And he's made it just real special the way any jazz musician who's going to build their own club wants it. And then, you know, oh, hooray, here comes the saxophone. <laughs> so, yeah. You loved it. Uh, well, I had a great time at the club. He was really nice. He told some really great stories. Uh, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. What a long piece of bacon to share with you, but that sounds yeah, fun. It was super fun. Um, when you come to Austin, we will have to go do that thing. All right, cool. We totally will. Yes, and uh, I I'm learned. I'm never coming to Texas, especially now. Oh well, yeah. Hi, I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll bring Parker's with me to San Francisco. All right, that's cool. Um, he did mention that he has uh, a very understanding wife who supports his dreams, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and that he has been habit diagnosed with a thing which is called uh. gear acquisition syndrome <laughs> i don't think that's real <laughs> hey he said it was a real thing i totally was has like it too. okay i figured that might resonate with you <laughs> have i sent you pictures of my husband's studio no i will after this call i will send you pictures he has he has a fair amount of gear oh i've Please do. I love it when okay. people collect things. <laughs> so um, what about you? Bit of a collector. Um, to tell you the truth, I have had a tough couple of days. And oh. um, it's it's because in part of the Roe v. Wade thing that ha- has really sort of knocked me out. Um, not that we didn't know it was happening, but to have it actually happen has been really tough. Um, but then, and you're probably going to laugh at this, but yesterday or the day before yesterday. So there's this woman on TikTok. And her name, her her um, her ad or whatever is Shoe Lover ninety nine, and she's known as Mama Todd. She has seven followers. She is the sweetest, kindest, just most generous 
person you'd ever want to meet. She is always talking about, you know, I don't know, she's doing fun stuff like test tasting weird foods and things like that. But, you know, she's always like, oh, how's everybody today? I don't know. I can't do it. I'm not that kind of person, unfortunately. So I can't, I can't portray how, how just wonderful a person she is. But I always look forward to watching her TikToks. And she lives in Alabama and she's just a Southern woman and she's just the kind of sweetest thing. Of course. Is she the one that's like, hi, my little tater tots? Yes. I love her. She is the best person in the world. And so what happened two nights ago was her her youngest son was shot and killed. Shot up? Um, no. Yes. He was he was at a gas station. I don't know any more than that, but he was shot and killed and um, she made a TikTok the next day, just absolutely, completely just just devastated. And I have felt so bad. Uh, I mean, this is not about me, but um, I have just, it, it really has just sort of thrown me for a loop. My heart is just completely broken for her because she's just oh. the kindest person. And and now to have this happen to her is just so sad. On top of everything else that's happened in like the last two years, it's just I'm I'm just completely knocked out. So, um, so that's my week. <laughs> but yeah, I know. So there's a TikTok or not a TikTok. There's a GoFundMe for her, and they're trying to raise seventy five thousand dollars, and they've already raised like two hundred thousand dollars for the funeral expenses and whatever she needs, which is really good. And I sent her some money via Venmo, and you can also send Cash App or whatever. So if you just go to her page, it. it it, there's links to um, to that stuff, but it's just so sad. Oh, yeah, I had no idea. Um, yeah, that's wow. Uh, yeah, so that's really um, not to bring the t- tenor of this show down, but that's kind of how it, how it is lately. Um, things are things seem bad and getting worse. So there you go. Um, <laughs> welcome to Apologies Accepted, the podcast. Podcast, yes. <laughs> Bland and dreary um, other than that, fun. Not too much has been going on. I've just been working. Um, the weather, looking out the window, the weather report for today. Please. It is foggy and chilly, so it's about 55, 60 degrees and foggy. Um, can't complain about the weather. Can't complain about any of that stuff. So uh, that's good. At least it's not uh, really, really hot or anything. How is it? How hot is it there? Oh, my God. Well, I mean, right now it's a chilly 85 degrees. <laughs> It is oh, 10.30 God, in the morning. It will yeah. be 105 later in the day. Yeah, it's hot. Um, but Yuck. no surprise. It's summer and it's always it's hot. Yep. I'm just worried about Here. what's going to happen when it gets to be July and August. I mean, if it's already this hot in so many places, how hot is it going to get? Oh, yeah. I, I don't know. It's, Hopefully you know. it'll be cooler and surprise everyone. But I don't know. Say. Global... Climate change is yeah. happening, and yeah. and that nice middle ground of spring and autumn is disappearing, and we're getting these extremes of yeah. super hot, super cold, and and weird things like snow in June in Colorado or whatever it was that they had snow. Um, well, everybody, we're... thanks for listening to Apologies Accepted the <laughs> podcast. It's your podcast for the day. <laughs> <laughs> Life sucks, and it's getting worse. See you later. We love you. Um, let's talk about Lizzo. Why not? Let's talk let's about and, something that's wonderful and, and cheery. I agree. Lift the tone a little bit. Um, so we decided to talk about Lizzo this week. Um, Lizzo's real name is Melissa Vivian Jefferson, and she was born April 27th, 1988, which is like, okay, I remember 1988. I was um, uh, in college in 1988, so that's a little bit disorienting to think about Lizzo being a full-grown woman having been born in 1988, but... 
That's the way the world works. Um, Lizzo became popular with the release of her third studio album in 2019. It was called Cause I Love You, and it peaked in the top five of the Billboard 200. Um, the album had two singles, called one called Juice and one called Tempo, and I don't think I know those two songs, but I wasn't really paying attention to Lizzo in 2019, so there's no surprise there. Um, and in the next year, in 2020, she got eight nominations at the 62nd Annual Grammy Awards, which was the most for any artist that year. Um, among those eight nominations were Album of the Year, Song of the Year, Record of the Year, and Best New Artist. And later she won the awards for Best Urban Contemporary Album, Best Pop Solo Performance, and Best Traditional R&B Performance. So tons of awards. Way to go, Lizzo. Did she win Best New Artist? Um, I hope maybe. not, because that's the cursed category. Everybody that wins oh, that. Is it? Oh, yeah. Google uh, the winners and look at that list. And where are they them. now? Wow. You, know, you won't remember them. I mean, you'll remember them, but it's like a list of one hit wonders. I hate to say that. Well, then she probably didn't win because she's certainly not a one she's around. Somebody she's still around. Won and broke that. And it might have been Billie Eilish, uh, but there was a thing like the curse has been broken. I think I like Billie Eilish now. I like her when I don't have to listen to her. <laughs> you don't like her music? I like her music fine. It It's you the her to her talk. part. I, I don't even mind. Like, I'm so in line with her politics. Yeah. Right? And I'm in yeah. line with her world perspective. Yeah. I think it's just, it's it's the April Levine sort of impersonation where I'm just like, I've seen this act huh. before. I see. Yeah. She just seems so cute on stage and she just seems so nice. So I guess that's why I like her right now. I saw her uh, performing on stage and she just seems to be a genuinely nice person. But but I don't know. I mean, there's some other things that we've seen that would indicate otherwise. So, so all right. Let's table talk Billie Eilish for now. Uh, we're we're hey. neutral on Billie Eilish. Net, net neutral. I um, like her. I mean, I'm neutral to liking, but... Okay. Okay. And we maybe like Billie the, Eilish. Maybe the thing that annoyed me was just a little bit of that... Uh, documentary on her that I saw. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I couldn't even watch. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So, um, Lizzo has released uh, a new song, a first single from her latest album, which will be called Special. Uh, she released it on June 10th of this year, which is just a couple of weeks ago. And in the, in the song, there's some lyrics, uh, including the word spaz. So, uh, in the song, she talks about, um, she says, I'm a spaz. I'm about to knock somebody out. Um, and of course, that word spaz is a derogatory term for a form of cerebral palsy known as spastic diplegia, which is a, a tightness of the limbs or the arm, arm or leg muscles. So um, stiffness of the limbs, um, which my sister has. So full, full uh, disclosure. I'm not I'm not neutral <laughs> on this topic. <laughs> and the song, of course, almost immediately got criticism from disability advocates. People asked her to delete and re-record the single to remove that slur from the lyrics. Uh, talent agent Abby Hills, who has cerebral palsy, said, it's absolutely shocking. It really made me flinch. Why you would choose that word when there's so many other options? It's just completely wrong. And other fans on social media said there was no excuse for using the derogatory and harmful slur. So what kind of response would you expect from um, an artist? I personally would expect a defensive response, but Lizzo actually responded with an apology statement and a re-recording of the song. So instead of the phrase, I'm a spaz, she sings, hold me back. Good job, Lizzo, I think. Um, it, it, like I said, I would normally expect people to be defensive and try to make excuses for using the term and, oh, I didn't know, you know, it doesn't mean anything, whatever. But she pretty much immediately re-recorded the song. She, she didn't even... 
if I remember the timeline correctly, she didn't even stop to say anything. She just recorded the song and then apologized, re-recorded the song and then apologized. Yeah, that is what happened. Yeah. So the interesting thing is that there was an NP article that I read that um, said that white disabled people in the U.S. and the U.K. were calling her out for using the word spaz without acknowledging the perspective of black disabled people who raised points about the need for cultural nuance and an intersectional lens to the situation. Melissa Thompson, who's a black disabled activist and licensed social worker, said to NPR, the erasure of black disabled people when it comes to a black entertainer has been very prominent throughout this whole thing. And black people in the U.S. and the U.K. pointed out how the word, which some say is a part of African-American vernacular English, is used differently by black people within their countries. Thompson wished there were an amplification of black disabled people who understand the nuances of those who use the word and those who are reclaiming it. Thompson believed that the way people go about critiquing others is very important, which I would agree with. Uh, in reading the discussions online, she said she noticed that they perpetuated anti-blackness and misogynoir or misogyny directed at black women. I can't speak. She said, I was shocked but not surprised by the way that white disabled people, especially those who claim to be in solidarity with black disabled people, engaged in the conversation. You're not in solidarity with us if your behavior during this time in addressing Lizzo can be read as problematic and offensive. And I would agree with that completely. If you're, if you're going to be racist or sexist or anything like that in criticizing a person for doing something, then it's not really legitimate. Um, you're not, you're not a fan. Um, you're, you're not really standing up in the right way. Uh, like, what am I trying to say? I, you don't get it. Yeah, you don't get it. You, you don't, don't get, get it. it. Um, if that's what you're doing. You hmm. may be, um, help, trying to help white disabled people, but you're ignoring a whole other group of people. This is so interesting to me. Um, yeah. and it, it, it will highlight yeah. it later. Right. Um, but, but yes, there is this thing where it's like, as communities come together to enact change, right? divisiveness within the community can just as quickly, um, create an end game where nothing happens. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah derail and distract. Yeah. It's, uh, it, I don't have an answer for it. It's, it's just interesting. Like within the gay community, there is a whole thing of like, there are that black word. gays and white gays. And uh -huh. if the black and white gays could just work it all out together, then right. everything would be so much stronger. But there's so much racism in the white gay community and so much blah, 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 blah. Um, not to diminish by blah, blah, blah. I'm not diminishing anybody's right. viewpoint on that. I'm just saying, I don't know enough to, to keep going. Well, it's the same, or I was thinking that this question is similar to the use of the N-word, where black people say, we can use the N-word because we have ownership of it, we're taking it back, we're reclaiming it. It's a little bit different, but it's, it's similar. So saying some people can use a word and some people can't, um, an offensive, uh, a word that may be considered offensive. And I, I have, I just have trouble with it because I know that I know that certain groups of people use the word spaz just to mean sort of freaked out or, you know, whatever. But uh, it, it, to me, it, it comes from the, the root of the use of the word comes from referring to um, spastic diplegia. And I don't think it's okay because of that. I don't think that no matter who you are, um, unless perhaps you have spastic diplegia, that's a separate issue. Then that's something for those people to address. Sure. But... I, I don't think it's it's okay otherwise. It's, it's my personal opinion. 
I have never heard the word used in any way other than to be derogatory. Right. 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 I, that too. Sure. Yeah. So it's just a word. There are other words. Yeah. I mean, there are tons of other words. So I agree. I agree. That's true. There are tons of other words. <laughs> <laughs> So back to Lizzo, she has recently released a song, which I find a little weird, but I'd like to have your perspective on it. Um, the new song is called Everybody's Gay, which is a queer anthem about living your best life, turning up, dancing, and just having some fucking fun. All right. So what do you as a spokesperson for gay people feel like this? <laughs> as king of all gays, what I have to say is... Um, I mean, everybody's not gay. What is that about? I mean, I understand the point that maybe she's trying to make, but isn't that taking things away from people who are gay? I mean, not everyone gets to be gay. Oh, like, gets to be gay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yippee. Yippee. Um, I, you know, I'll say this. Uh, every artist with of a certain stripe wants yeah. to have the big summer anthem. Right. And so if you can get the gay anthem, then you have a pretty strong chance because you're getting played in clubs and all that bullshit of becoming the summer anthem at least that's how it used to work now the music industry has changed so much i i don't know how those drivers right. fit together anymore yeah um so uh you know i mean i'd have to hear the song to really okay that's a good point give yeah, my I don't know what the song blessing to it but i'll say <laughs> whatever on the face of it you don't have any issues I, fair enough eh, who cares <laughs> I mean, I'd rather I'd rather that than go kill a gay if that Fuck was her song. <laughs> right. <laughs> Too many fucking gays. <laughs> Again. Yeah. So right. could go the other way. So thank it's you for your uh allianceship, your stewardship. What word am I looking? Yeah, thank you for being an ally, ally. Lizzo. Allyhood. Um I think Lizzo has shown herself to be an ally, so uh I think at least that she's coming from the right place. Oh, I totally yeah. agree. I mean, um, I don't want to give my rating away just yet, but right. I will say this was, um, well, oh, I'll save it for the apology. Okay. That part. Um, but going back to what I was saying earlier about being depressed about Roe v. Wade. So she and Live Nation banded together, so to speak, to announce that they would together donate a million dollars from the special tour to support abortion access groups. So um, good for them. I don't know why she teamed up with Live Nation, but whatever. I mean, I don't care. So it's just aren't they the for donating five band promoter yeah yeah theater management uh, thingy yeah yeah i mean whatever good for them i think madonna owns them entirely now right probably i don't know i hadn't heard that a big part of it whatever i mean i guess long story short they are a force within the touring music world yeah so hurrah yeah. right yeah. and then they're progressive yeah. because Madonna. I thought they were the ones that charged tons of money in fees. They were. They are. I haven't bought a concert ticket in so I haven't bought so one from long. Live Nation for, yeah, so long. I don't know either. But that was a, that was an issue in probably the 90s, so it's probably been resolved since, I don't know. I have no idea. Or it hasn't, and we just don't, it doesn't matter I mean, anymore. We're used to it now. Yeah. So let's talk about the apology. Um, her apology said, It's been brought to my attention that there is a harmful word in my new song, Girls. And that's G-R-R-R-L-S, F-Y-I. 
Um, let me make one thing clear. I never want to promote derogatory language. As a fat black woman in America, I've had many hurtful words used against me, so I understand the power words can have, whether intentionally or, in my case, unintentionally. I'm proud to say there's a new version of Girls with a lyric change. This is a result of me listening and taking action. As an influential artist, I'm dedicated to being part of the change I've been waiting to see in the world. XOXO Lizzo. What do you think about that apology? Oh, 9.8. Like, do you think honestly. So really? Oh, a, a 1,000%. And why? Because why? she... Because I <laughs> love apologies. And I rate them all highly. No, because she actually re-recorded the song at yes. her expense yeah right i mean that's not a cheap thing to get everybody together right. in the studio to reissue and all that shit yeah, yeah. you, you got to pay other people again songwriters yeah. again i don't know if she wrote the song or, or what have you but like that it's not just walking into the room and recording one word and having it swapped <laughs> out on the track right isn't it what if she just re-sang that phrase? Couldn't you just substitute that phrase into there? And then, oh, you do have to reissue it, but You're I don't know. You're married that... to the producer, so you'll know, have to ask, ask him. him. And I, I mean, I have I to hear this. I should have before the podcast. How dare you not do all of your homework <laughs> on time? Sorry. Um, so I have a little bit of a different opinion because I, I think, well, I think that the fact that she re-recorded it and did so so promptly is excellent. So 10, 10 out of 10 for that. But she didn't really, so when we look at, at our, our, our categories of what makes a good apology, did she express regret? No, she didn't really. She said, I never want to promote derogatory language. But did she say, I'm sorry? Did she say, I, I wish I hadn't done this? I mean, kind of. She says, I understand how words can hurt. But no real expression of regret, no real explanation of what went wrong. She didn't try to say, I didn't understand um, that this was an issue or, or I, 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 she kind of, she kind of inf inferred, implied it um, yeah. in saying, I never want to promote derogatory language, but she didn't really go into it. Um, she didn't take responsibility and say, you know, I wrote these lyrics and, and, and I take responsibility and I'm sorry. She didn't say she was sorry. Um, she didn't request forgiveness. She didn't say, please forgive me. Please um, understand that I didn't mean to do this and, and accept my apology. But she did make an offer of repair and she did repair what she had done. So for that, like I said, 10 out of 10. But overall, I would give, I mean, I really like Lizzo and I like what she did here. I, I think she did the right thing. I would give it a 5 out of 10 though, overall. As an apology, I would Ooh, give it a 5 out of 10. Okay. All right. I'm still going to stick with my 9.8. Um, Okay. I might come down to 9.5, but <laughs> I think for me, it's the action that was taken. That's which, more important. Uh, uh, yeah, more important. I th it points to sincerity. It, it points to um, authenticity, right? Right, it right. It doesn't feel like a career-saving mood. Just right? a PR apology. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really feel like that. It doesn't hurt. Right, right? sure. It's sure. uh, so great and Lizzo does have a brand which is self-care and loving and all accepting. So, you know, there's you could argue there's some brand management happening there, but I would also say like she just is that way. So, it's probably yeah. not really brand management. Um so I don't think the issuance of the apology is self-serving, which for me would knock it further down. But you are right that there are these missing components 
uh, and I'm sorry. But she did say that, you know, she was listening. And so, I mean, yeah, me, she said implies. this is a result of me listening and taking action. And I, I guess that's okay. I mean, it kind of struck me as, look how great I am. I listened and took action. But that's probably not what she meant. Well, so. Maybe that's not what she meant, but also maybe it is. Because that one <laughs> bit where she said, uh, you know, as an influential artist, when I read yeah. that, I was like, I know you are, <laughs> but humility, you know. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Um, so so do we accept the apology? Um, Brent suggested we have a, a part of the thing where we either accept or decline the apology. And I accept the apology. I totally accept the apology. All right. Good. I, Lizzo passes. I think she's great. I listened to a podcast with her and she, uh, and of course it's, it was a very self-helpy kind of uh-huh. a conversation, which isn't my thing. I don't, I don't love right. those types of conversations. I, you know, whatever about feelings, they mm-hmm. don't exist and they're not real. Right. Um, but she did say that people tend to hear her first, like they, they'll stumble across an interview and then they find her music. It's not so much, at least in the beginning, it wasn't so much uh, people listening to her music. It was more people reacting to her right oh there's this what do you cool... mean like hearing her on a podcast yeah hearing her podcast reading really? an interview about her yeah i mean that's what she said okay right sure. um and so uh, i'm gonna say i've heard a couple of her songs but i really liked her as a person yeah. um so uh i may i may actually try out some lizzo and, all right and fall into the cliche category of people hear about her first <laughs> and then discover her music. Awesome. All right. So we're a pro Lizzo podcast. Yes. We're pro, we're pro Lizzo and Billie Eilish. And Billie look, Eilish. Look well, at us. We're pro female artist podcast and some men too, but we don't, can't think of any at the moment. There, well, <laughs> we'll find them. They're there. So do you have a who's sorry now or an apology expected this week? I do. I do indeed. But before that, I want to, um, I want to share with you this documentary on Netflix that's called Crip Camp. Have you seen it? I've heard about that. Wow. You uh, run, watch it. It is, it is so beautiful. It is so moving. It's heartwarming. It's well, it's, I cried a lot through it. Oh, no. Right? Um, but very empowering tears, right? Right. And so this whole thing with Lizzo and the use of that word, I was kind of like looking for what in this story is is interesting for me. And it wasn't like who gets to say what words, because that's just a big conversation that's had many, many, many times over. So I figured I won't, I won't do that one. So it was like, what are... Um, disabled people doing in the world uh like how are things right i i'm gonna say i can't think of anyone that i know who is disabled i have friends who might fall within various areas of the spectrum of disabilities but probably don't identify themselves as disabled right um and so so anyway, whatever, I was Googling like history of disabilities. And so 
not hard to figure out that, you know, was never really great for people with disabilities for a very long time. Still isn't great. Um, but I will say Crip Camp shows, it tells the story of the birth of a movement and why it's really intriguing and interesting is um, there were cameras here following the leaders of the movement around as they were enacting and enforcing change. Um, and so let me tell you a little bit about Crip Camp, right? Okay. And how the passage of uh, Section 504 in the Rehabilitation Act of 1973, how, mm. how that got passed and how um, that led to the ADA, the Americans with Disability Act, uh, and how sort of the world was... The playing field was a little more equalized in terms of access to public buildings for people with disabilities. Okay. So, um, Crip Camp, produced by Barack and Michelle Obama. How amazing, right? Um, and it was directed by Nicole Newman and Jim Lebricht. Uh, Jim attended the camp, and it was called Camp Jeanette. And his story is one of the central points of Crip Camp. Um and so the film starts off with archival real footage from 1971 of the campers coming together. And so it's explained to the audience that um, the campers lived in a world surrounded by able-bodied people. And they were always excluded, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And so when they all get to uh, Camp Jeanette, it's the first time that some of them have ever seen so many disabled people all together. Yeah, yeah. And for the four or eight weeks, because the programs were different lengths of time, so there were four-week programs and eight-week programs, but for, we'll say for the summer, um, they were, they, it was all about inclusion, right? Great. So yeah. the counselors were not just caregivers, right? They're actually pot-smoking hippies who are drinking. <laughs> um, the kids, and I say kids, it's mostly teenagers, right? Uh -huh. um, have romances for the first time, uh -huh. are playing sports together for the first time. People who were shy at school because they're in a wheelchair and nobody wants yeah. to talk to, suddenly they're the popular kid, uh -huh. right? Because they're the yeah. funny one and, and everybody just gets to be a kid. It was a life-changing experience for these Camp Jeanette teens. And so in 1971, when Jim went to the camp, um, and he, he gets to have his first girlfriend at camp, uh, he gets to discover that he is popular, he can be outgoing. Um, uh, let's see. And so... Sorry, I'm, I'm getting lost in his story. And it's kind of... So he's the director. And at the camp, they had a video camera. Hard to come by in the 70s, but they had one. And so the film sets up these stories where you look at the person in 1970 when they were 15 years old, right? And then today, and they talk uh. about the experience of being at camp and and what happened and how this group of people um, stuck together, really, um, and forced the United States government to enact a provision 
in uh, civil rights law that was not being enforced. So here's a story. So you've got this camp, the kids are all together and they all meet. And they, it's a different world for them and they feel empowered and they feel empowered because they're helping themselves and they're helping each other, right? The yeah. counselors were drunk and stoned. They were not picking a lot of people up and carrying them out into the pool, right? Uh-huh. Um, so uh, there was a girl there. Her name is Judy Human, And uh-huh. sorry, lazy writing, but I'm going to forgive <laughs> it because that one, it's her real name. But well. Judy Human. Uh, yeah. Let me tell you, she's Judy Superhuman. Thank you. Yes, and you were about <laughs> to find out why. So um, after Camp Jeanette, Judy becomes a teacher, and she ends up suing the Board of Education um, because of what she termed as discrimination against her access into school buildings. No elevator. She can't get to the second floor. She can only teach on the ground floor, right? Yeah. Um, how does she get into the building? Um and so because of her lawsuit, she um, helped found an organization called Disability in Action. And so that's about 1971. Um, disabled people were largely invisible, not really part of the mainstream conversation. And in 1972, Geraldo Rivera, there's a name. Um, wow. Guy used to do good in the world instead of who he is now, um, did an expose on a facility called Willowbrook, which uh, was for disabled people and disabled children, really, and straight out of the 1800s. The the film crew showed up, walked through, and I, I, like, sure, here's some images, right? And this is aired in 1972 on wow. TV, right? And so naked children curled up in fetal positions on the floor because oh. they can't walk. Yeah. Right? And no no staff coming to help them. Uh, breakfast was three minutes per child, and they show, God. like, the nurses just smashing this food oh into gosh. the kids' faces, right? What the hell? Um, oh, I mean, it was, it was fucking horrific. The Ugh. 35 seconds they showed uh, in the documentary of the original uh, Geraldo Rivera uh, clip, yeah, gut gut wrenching, uh-huh. awful, uh-huh. disgusting, right? And Judy and other Camp Jeanette kids yeah. saw this on TV, right? Uh-huh. And at one point, Judy says, "You know, I." I realized that I or any of my friends could very easily have ended up in an institution like that. Yeah. Uh, Just the stroke of luck that here I sit at home with my parents, right. Who are overprotective. And there, and there's that other side of, of things too, where life is hard, but could be, could be even worse. Right. I hate to say that because that just sounds so like, uh, but, but true. So, so not because of the Geraldo Rivera show, but these things are in the air, right? This idea of um, civil rights, this idea of groups getting together and protesting to create change, this idea that young people can make the world a better place, right? And so, uh, and I'll say Judy a lot, right? But 
uh, there were other people involved in this, but I really, I really felt, and, and the documentary Crip Camp focuses on her, right? But there were other activists out there. She's, she's not a one woman show, but Crip Camp certainly makes it, um, obvious that none of none, a lot of this happens because of her, her involvement. So, um, the Rehabilitation Act of 1972 had a section in it called 504 and 504 said that any organization or institution that gets federal money has to accommodate disabled people. Mm. Nixon vetoed uh, this. He said the cost would be too high. You have to get elevators and ramps in at every building across America. And this will be a direct quote. How many people will really be served by it? Uh. Yeah. So not a surprise. Right. Uh Um, So Disability in Action, uh, Judy's group that she helped form, took to the streets in New York. About 50 people in wheelchairs just lined up on 4th Avenue and shut the street down. Right. And the cops show up because, okay, well, it's 1970s. There's protest all the time. Hippies are upset now. Oh, wow. It's a bunch of people in wheelchairs. I am not pushing them out of the street. I am not going to arrest someone in a wheelchair. Nope. Right. They weren't doing it because they were on the side of the handicapped people. Right. They right? were just afraid to look bad. Yeah. yeah. It's going to look real fucking bad. Back yeah. in the days when the cops cared about how things looked. About looking bad. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, and so, uh, so that generates a very almost no press beyond like New York paralyzed for... That was not meant to be. (laughs) New York traffic comes to a standstill because because of a protest by crippled people, but not major national news. Um, Okay, so so in about 1973, um, DIA, Disability in Action, recognized they weren't getting a lot of national coverage. Right. So in 1973, um, a group from DIA recognized that they weren't getting a lot of national coverage, but they weren't sure how to get national coverage. And they recognized they might need some disabled Vietnam veterans with them. Oh, interesting. Because the focus at the time was all on Vietnam and protest around Vietnam. So as the soldiers came home and were not well received, um, you had disabled vets who were not getting the support that they needed. So having, including them, bringing them into DIA, right, did generate a little bit more press, um, better photo ops, uh, which does, uh, you know, I hate to say it that way because it does sound self-serving, but there was a need. They recognized something that could help them get what they needed. So um, Nixon eventually caves in and he signs the bill and 504 is now law, but there's no enforcement. So there's no punishment meted out against hospitals for not having elevators. Right. right. Um, around this time, the Camp Jeanette people sort of independently, but also because collectively they were still in touch with each other, writing letters and phone calls, et cetera. Um, a group of them moved to Berkeley, right? Because Berkeley was sort of the 
central for hippie freedom, uh, rights, protests, etc. And so the Camp Jeanette people wanted to recreate the, I'll use the word utopia, that they experienced at camp. Mm-hmm. And so they get together, a number of them, and they create a um, something called the Center for Independent Living. Now, how they got a bunch of apartments in the same building, yeah. I don't know, right? Okay. There, there's some of the mechanics I, I don't know. Uh-huh. But what you had was the group from uh, Camp Jeanette all living together in the same building, all taking care of each other, right? Um, and so fantastic, great. Uh, this includes Judy Human. Um, and so, so because of the lack of enforcement of 504, right, the group recognized that they needed to get some government organization to start taking 504 seriously. Mm-hmm. And they they decided that uh, HEW, which is Health, Education, and Welfare, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, um, would make a great first target. Um, so the protesters understood that the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare was lead agency and that their regulations would become guidelines for all other federal agencies, being the Department of Transportation, HUD, etc. Um, it was crucial that the regulations be strong because ultimately 504 would cover every area that received federal financial assistance. Um, and so the group decides to go to the headquarters for HEW in San Francisco and have a protest outside. And then they got inside the building peacefully and decided that they were going to go up to the fourth floor. Mind you, these are people in wheelchairs. Yeah. These are people with crutches, right? Um, So not necessarily easy to get. And there were 200 people. 200 people up to the fourth floor takes time, right? Yeah. But but they'd managed to do it. And what they wanted was for Joseph Maldonado, who was the regional director of HEW, to call Joseph Calfano, who was the U.S. secretary of HEW, so the big guy. They wanted the regional guy to call the big guy in D.C. and just get 504 rolling, right? But during that meeting, it became clear that no call was ever going to be made and nothing was going to happen. They just got a bunch of, like, non-answers, a bunch of political nonsense. Yeah, yeah. All of this is caught on film. Oh. It becomes part of Crip Camp, right? So you actually see uh, people living in the Center for Independent Living, and you actually see the protesters going into the building, and you actually see the meeting with um, yeah, Joseph Maldonado. Uh, and so the group of 200 people, and I'll say principally Judy, at least according to the documentary, decide, you know what? We're not leaving the fourth floor. We're not wow. leaving until we get what Good we want. Them. Yeah. Uh, really, 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 I'll say really again, really mm-hmm. powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they decide to stage a sit-in. Yes. The news uh, reports it as an occupation army of cripples. Oh, jeez. Nice, 1970s. Who wow. took over the fourth floor. So 
they want everybody out of the fucking building. So they turn off the hot water, right? And yeah, it's the 70s. There are protest people. There, there are strategies for dealing with protesters, right? So they turn off the hot water, but they still have access to water, right? Um, and then the phones are, phone lines are cut off. So there's no access to the outside world. Right. And the group was like, okay, well, how are we going to communicate with it? And there were deaf people inside the movement as well. Yeah. And so they went to the windows and signed to and people signed. outdoors, Ooh, right? Clever. Yeah. So they were able actually to get the needs, right? Food, yeah. et cetera. Um, and so uh, through that, the Black Panthers, uh, which is still around, I believe, um, but was more visible in the 70s, um, which was an organization that fought for civil rights for people of color, principally uh, black people. Um, the Black Panthers came and brought food, and uh, one of the I don't know one of the leaders reports in the documentary talking to the uh, somebody from the Black Panthers and saying, "You guys don't have access to a lot of resources. Why are you giving us food? Right? Thank you." But how and why? And uh, and the spokesperson for the Panthers said, you guys are trying to make the world a better place for everyone. And so for as long as you're willing to lay on the floor, we're willing to give you food, which amazing, right? Uh, so within the group of 200 people, um, there were leaders, right? And Judy Human was one of them. There were a couple of others. Uh, and they formed small committees, committees for media relations, committees that figured out how to get food, etc. cetera. Uh, one of the rules was that everybody had a chance to speak. Uh, no meeting could begin until a deaf uh, sign language interpreter was available. Uh-huh. Meetings would run until 3 a.m. because everybody got a chance to speak. But it was uh, important that everyone felt as if they were contributing or not even felt. It was important that everybody contribute and make a difference, right? Because um, why are you sitting here spending the night on the floor and potentially here for many days if you're not making a difference yourself, right? So um, so it ended up the occupation, um, the sit-in lasted 26 days. Again, these were people with... Uh, disabilities, so no backup ventilators, there were no personal care assistance, no access to catheters. We had quadriplegics yeah. who couldn't turn themselves over, who oh laying in the middle of the floor, right? Eventually oh mattresses were brought down. Um, but, you know, and, and yes, tough. And I, and I share all that to highlight just how much they had to endure in yeah. order to be heard. Yeah. Right? And so um, as one of as one of the protesters recounted later, she said, the world wants us dead. We spend every day saying, how am I going to survive? And that feeling does become anger, but it eventually turns into a drive. Um, so there were hunger strikes. There was a lot of pressure on Judy, a lot of responsibility on Judy's shoulders. And um, she would say to everybody each day, right, um, are you going to stay today? Can you stay today? Can you just stay one more day? So Evan White was the only reporter uh, in the Bay Area who was covering this. 
and he got inside the building. He was able to interview people. He showed up every day. Uh, he he was he sort of became the face of this protest for the local San Francisco viewing audience of Channel Seven. Right. The protesters decided that what they really needed was to step things up. And since they couldn't get to Congress, they decided to demand that Congress come to them. Uh, so two congressmen actually came uh, to HEW, the fourth floor, to listen to the protesters. And uh, on film, Judy is meeting with the two congressmen, and she says, this is the beginning of a civil rights movement and we are proud that you're here to help us launch the civil right movement, which is so long overdue. Um, I mean, I'm going to say you do not want to be on the wrong side of Judy human when she has yeah. a microphone in front of her face. <laughs> uh, she's just really phenomenal. Um, so Califano, who was the U S head of HEW sent um, basically an assistant down or over to San Francisco to meet with the group, a guy named Mr. Eidenberg. And he shows up to speak with the protesters and he shares that Califon Califano had a lot of concerns about Section 504. It felt very broad to him. Um, he wondered if alcoholics and drug addicts could be included in the Disability Act. Hmm. How many hospitals were going to be affected? Um and then Eidenberg gets up and leaves the meeting and locks himself into an office because it's too much to meet with these people and tell them you're not going to help them. Wow. And what was happening on the outside as well is that 504 was getting chipped at and, and revised, right? Yeah. Hospitals didn't want to spend the money on putting in elevators and ramps. Um, yeah. Libraries didn't want to have to do that. Firehouses didn't want to have to do that. Nobody did, yeah. Airports didn't want to have to do it, right? right? And again, the idea was like, well, there's only one person in a wheelchair in all of Manhattan, so why are we every <laughs> building have to have a ramp for her, right? right? Um, and so, so Eidenberg locks himself into an office and Congressman Burton gets up, walks over to the office, kicks the door until Eidenberg opens the door and comes back out to resume the meeting. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so on camera, we have Judy speaking to Mr. Eidenberg. Um, she starts to explain to him that some of the changes in 504 are broaching on separate but equal, right? Yeah. Like, well, you can't have access to every firehouse, but maybe there'll be a, a disabled firehouse that we'll build for right. you, right? Um, and she brings up Brown versus the Board of Education and how that decision in and of itself applies to equality for all people, including disabled people, right? And she says to him, um, the harassment, the loss of equality, the, the harassment, the loss of equity that is being discussed by the administration is so intolerable that I cannot even put it into words. And I would appreciate it if you would stop shaking your head in agreement when I don't think you understand what we are talking about. Mm. Yeah, I, a really powerful moment, right? Mm -hmm. And um, somebody else in the documentary states that there are moments when you see history shift and mm -hmm. that that meeting with Eidenberg was when history shifted. 
So um, the group decides after the meeting with Eidenberg to send 25 people to D.C. to try and meet with the president. Uh, and Evan White, our local Channel 7 hero, went with them. They went mm. to California's office, straight off the plane. Now, uh, you know, wheelchairs, crutches, right, in an right. age when the world's not built for them. Uh-huh. So, and by them, I mean wheelchairs and crutches. So, yeah. you know, you're renting a U-Haul truck. You're loading people onto it. You're strapping yeah. them in, right? You're driving them to the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare's home right. and wheeling them out, right? Um and they had a candlelight vigil in front of his house. The police showed up and once again, didn't sat there and watched be because, yeah. yeah, I don't want to be that guy. It's too easy to punch somebody in a wheelchair. It's no fun. Yeah. Right. God. You're welcome. Right. Um, and th- so while the group's in D.C., they start trying to find Carter and initiate contact with him. So... They have a little protest in front. It's 25 people. Of course, it's a little protest in front of his church on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And Carter leaves out the side door so that there's no camera off. And also he doesn't have to, you know, deal with protesters. Um, So uh, let's see here. Okay. So um, during while the group's in D.C., back in San Francisco, the FBI starts to ramp things up and they start harassing the protesters on the fourth floor. They're turning on fire alarms. They're dialing in bomb scares, right? And Judy uh, phones in every day to remind people, you have to stay there, you guys. You can't leave until I call you and tell you that 504 has been signed. Because that's what they were doing. They weren't going to like, oh, we want... To be in the papers and we want our story picked up they yeah. wanted a signature yeah that was the goal that was the Amazing. end game that was the whole purpose and it, we're not leaving till we get that so evan white's filming them he's in dc with them right and he's getting ready to send his footage back to channel seven in san francisco when the impossible happens which is such a strike of luck there's a technician strike in news stations across the country. Technicians just, we want more money, everybody, and better health care and whatever else we want. We want to be able to smoke cigarettes all day long at our desk, not have to uh-huh. go outside whatever they needed. Right? <laughs> and so there wasn't a lot of news available. Oh. But Evan White's footage, which he was sending to Channel 7, was available. And so some strike breakers took his footage and fed it to all ABC affiliates. Wow. Here's your news. Here you go. Sorry, you can't have any blank space on TV. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly this becomes a national news story, right? And Califano, it was fine if it was a news story in San Francisco. Who cares about those hippies, right? But all of a sudden you have grandmothers in Wisconsin and Kansas calling your office to tell you you're a horrible person. Yeah. Guess what happened? Oh, he signed 504. Um, There was no news coverage. There was no fanfare. He didn't do it in front of press. He just signed 504. And he states in an interview, 
um, at the day after, right? I think that this calls for a revolution of attitudes, thinking, and activities on behalf of millions of American citizens. Um, as I mentioned, Excellent. the HEU sit-in lasted 26 days and was critical in forcing the signing of these regulations. Uh, Kitty Cohn, who was another activist, said, at every moment, we felt ourselves the descendants of the civil rights movement of the 60s. We learned about its sit-ins from the civil rights movement. We sang freedom songs to keep up morale and consciously show the connection between the two movements. We always drew the parallels. About public transportation, we said we can't even get on the back of the bus. Mm. And so it's interesting to hear from earlier your point about black disabled activists taking issue, right? When the white activists in the 70s in this movement consciously and, and acknowledged that they borrowed tactics from right. the black civil rights movement. Right. Um, yeah. I, I will say Crip Camp, amazing, amazing film. Uh, and I haven't even told the half of it. That is so encouraging, especially now when you think about all the protesting and stuff that we're going to need to do about Roe v. Wade and everything else that follows after it, to think that a small group of people like that can actually make a difference. And and you can, I can, we can. Right. It just takes determination and willingness, right? These uh, The HEW sit-in was not a bunch of able-bodied people smoking cigarettes and drinking martinis sitting yeah. in a waiting room, right? These were yeah. people who literally had no showers. Yeah. Who, and I mean, they probably put their lives on the line in some cases. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, undoubtedly, some yeah. people did suffer. If you're yep. quadriplegic and you can't you turn can't. over, then yeah, you eventually horrible. get bed sores. Yeah. So. Um, so yeah, just, uh, just really heartening. And I thank you think for you're that right. story. That's a great story for this. For you're now. welcome. America's hero it. delivers once again. <laughs> I may as well have been there. Thank you, Theo, for what you did to save yes. the <laughs> to, F504. To make the world accessible for people with disabilities. I am a hero. It's true. You're welcome. <laughs> So even though you are a hero, do you have a who's sorry now? I do. So I'm going to say <laughs> that uh, Crip Camp was life-changing in a way, awesome. right? Yeah. Um, uh, I was unaware that there is such a thing as disability consciousness mm -hmm. because I didn't have it. Right. You know, I have a big heart and everybody gets a hug mm -hmm. and... Um, yeah, right. would be awesome if it was a fair world for everybody and should be. So, you know, absolutely. Am I annoyed when there's a deaf uh, interpreter standing next to somebody? No, not at all. That doesn't bug me one bit. I know people, it bothers, right? Really? Um, yes. It bothers people? That's ridiculous. Yeah, I know. Isn't it stupid? I have heard God. people say, they're just standing there and all the sign stuff. We don't have to just, just have the words go across the screen. Uh Come on. I'm rolling my eyes. I, I think it's cool. I know. Same. Okay. Um, so, so I used to love Helen Keller jokes. Oh, God, you did. I remember. I really, I collected some. I know some amazing jokes <laughs> and, and uh, always find them funny. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then while I was watching Crip Camp, I, I was thinking about me and my relations with people with disabilities. And it was like, oh God, all those Helen Keller jokes, you can't tell them anymore. Because <laughs> while I found them funny, the thing I was yeah. missing was, right. anyway, sure, Helen Keller, it's 1800s, fine. She's almost a mythic fictional character in my head. Uh-huh. Not uh-huh. real, right? Um, kind of funny. And that is how I discharge unease through genius comedy. Um, and so, yeah, no, they're funny because she's disabled. And right. that now makes them not funny to me. The thing that made right. them funny is now the thing that, and I'm embarrassed to say that never occurred to me once. Oh, wow. Never. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, not one, uh, All that ever occurred to me was, you mean you've never heard this Helen Keller joke? Oh, my God. Okay, here you go. Ready? That's that's all I live for. Um, and so, well, look at you growing and changing. I know. The show is having an influence on me. <laughs> so I you am truly sorry. are America's hero. Yes. And I'm humbled, too. <laughs> okay, what about you? Apologies expected. Who's sorry now? I have an apology expected, and this comes from the New Haven Register and also from the ASC Review, an article by Patsy Newitt, and the ASC Review, I believe, is an anesthesiology publication. But Yale is being sued by dozens of patients who are saying that the staff at the, um, the Yale Health System Reproductive Clinic should have known that instead of giving fentanyl to the patients for anesthesia, they were being injected with saline. Oh. Right. So because of this switch, dozens of women underwent fertility surgeries with no pain relief. Oh. The plaintiffs say that Yale showed carelessness and recklessness in not preventing a diversion of at least 75% of the fentanyl stored at the clinic by one nurse, whose name is Donna Monticone, who pleaded guilty March 1st to one count of tampering with a consumer product. The suit claims Yale is liable because it was alerted to the problem with its supply of fentanyl through patients' intraoperative screams and postoperative reports of torturous pain, but it didn't investigate. Instead, the problem was attributed to, get this, the unavailability of an anesthesiologist. Well, what? I mean... Um, what? That Would also sounds like a problem. That? I mean, that's a problem, too. No. Uh, hello? If you don't have an anesthesiologist and you're... Uh, I can't even start. So the suit claims that Yale took no responsibility for the fentanyl substitution and blames the single nurse who was able to steal the fentanyl unabated for more than 20 weeks. That's five months. Wow. And I wonder how many people she killed on the outside by selling that fentanyl. Oh, I bet she took it, but I don't know. Maybe maybe she sold it too. So, uh, good Lord. Um, I I just, I how, how, how could you even have one surgery with no anesthesia and not figure out there's a problem and do something about it? But Are you ready? But instead of five months. Are you ready? I have the answer for you. How? You're not going to like it. They're women? Women are hysterical. Uh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I'm sure you were in a lot of pain. Yeah. I if know, they were men, terrible. I wonder what would happen if there was even. Oh, a the country would have been shut down. And- that's right. <laughs> oh, God. So, yeah, I'm expecting an apology from Yale University for this, if not um, the loss of, of a big fat fucking lawsuit. I hope so, because I would love to cut. Co- well, would I love to cover that? No, because <laughs> it sounds like there's a lot of stuff in there I wouldn't want to know. But. Right. Um, Holy moly. I can't believe it. 
I do believe it, but I also can't believe it. But it's Yale. <laughs> so you, know. you do believe it more or you believe it less? Yeah, yeah. You do believe it more? They have a really good English department, but I think that's kind of it. Oh, really? Yeah. I like don't Yale know. Law? I kept up with Yale. Well, there's a reason yeah, why. Sure. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, that's it for me. I don't have anything else. Any other good news to impart today? It's been all one bad thing after another, but thank you for bringing some some um, enlightenment and, and uplifting news to, to us, Theo. So, thank yes. you so much. And remember, get out there. You can make a difference. You can make a difference. It's proven by this story today. So thank you. All right, everybody. Have a great week. Take care. We love you. See you later. Bye. We love you. (laughs) (laughs) We do, though. Bye. listening to Apologies Accepted, the podcast. You can find links to the articles and the sources in the show notes. To submit an apology or find out more, visit us at ApologiesAccepted.net, where you can also find our merchandise. We're on Twitter at Apologies Accepted. And on Instagram at Apologies.Accepted. You can support our important work at Patreon forward slash Apologies Accepted. And fuck Facebook. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>